Hello, and welcome back to the Health Disparities Podcast, a program of the Movement is Life Caucus. Movement is Life is an initiative that aims to reduce health disparities, particularly in the areas of musculoskeletal disease and related conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, and mental health. We focus on these disparities that we see particularly in women, Black and Latino communities, and populations living in rural areas. Thank you for joining us today. Let me just mention that all the views and opinions expressed in the discussion today are the participants' own and do not necessarily reflect those respective organizations or those of Movement is Life. I'm Mary Behrens. I'm a nurse practitioner in rural Wyoming, and I have the great honor to serve on the Movement is Life Caucus Steering Committee, where I constantly remind everyone that advanced nurse practitioners are a vital part of the healthcare provider mix. This podcast continues to build on our previous discussions focused on value-based models of care. Our Movement is Life Value monograph provides a really nice overview of how payment systems impact the provision of care, especially to high-risk vulnerable populations. And you can download this from our website at movementislifecaucus.com. This episode will take a look at the impact of value-based models of care from the nurse practitioner's perspective. And to help our listeners get up to speed, let's talk a little bit about nurse practitioners. And it is my pleasure to welcome my good friend and colleague, Dr. Joyce Kanestrick, a family nurse practitioner from Washington, Pennsylvania, who now cares for low-income and underserved populations in rural Appalachia. Among her many distinctions as a leading nurse practitioner and advocate, Dr. Kanestrick is the most recent past president of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. And so welcome, Dr. Kanestrick, to the podcast. Thank you very much, Mary. Thank you for that lovely introduction. I'm so happy to be here to talk about nurse practitioners and our role in providing access to care for nurse practitioners in rural and underserved areas, but more importantly, on how we we will get paid uh, to provide those services. According to the American Journal of Medicine article, and this is a 2017 edition, uh, the authors are uh, Dahl and Ryan and Albert, only 33% of physicians practice in primary care. So my question to you is, where do nurse practitioners practice and how many are in primary care? We know that 89% of nurse practitioners are certified in primary care and about 70%, I think it's roughly around 69 point some percent, um, actually practice in a primary care setting. And from what we can glean from the data, about 30 to 35% of nurse practitioners practice in rural and underserved areas. So I think we make up a significant workforce that's um, working with the, with um, special populations that really need the, the type of care that nurse practitioners provide. Right. And I also think that they're obviously fulfilling a, a needed gap right now due to the fact that um, physicians are just are tending to more go into specialty care. That is important information. 
So let's briefly talk about the different payment models that impact uh, nurse practitioners, and that would be fee-for-service versus bundled payments. Um, As in the earlier podcast, I think explained very well um, the fee-for-service and value-based payments and bundled payments. So usually when we talk about bundled payment, we're oftentimes talking about surgical or hospital settings where uh, a nurse practitioner may may be working as part of a team in a say, an orthopedic practice, which you're most familiar with. And the nurse practitioner may be doing the um, H&P and some follow-up work and education along with the the whole team um, in that orthopedic setting, perhaps after surgery. And so all the payment would be bundled into one. uh, I think that's the best way to explain it for uh, people, for the audience, that um, that bundling um, would be one charge, which would include everything. So here, the nurse practitioner um, would be sort of hidden in that cost because her role, perhaps in doing the HMP or the patient education or taking sutures out or whatever they would be actually doing, um, that would be all part of that bundled payment. And the fee-for-service model is probably one where most people are familiar with. You know, you provide a service and you get paid a fee. And um, that is how our government, Medicare and Medicaid, um, have worked for many, many years. And so that kind of pushed providers into having to see a lot of patients in in a day in order to make money, in order to be able to, um, you know, keep their practices afloat. Um, So it seemed like people were pushed through. Maybe they only got a five or 10 minute visit, didn't have time to, um, you know, get all their questions uh, answered, et cetera. But I think that um, the new payment models called value-based payment is really like pay for, 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 uh, pay for performance. And what we see in uh, pay uh, for performance is starting to look more at the quality of the care that the provider gives and what are the outcomes that the patient um, receives. And so this model is more uh, in line with the nurse practitioner model since we we tend to be a more holistic in the care that we give uh, our patients. So we're looking at them not only in terms of their uh, disease process, but their health promotion, their health uh, disease prevention strategies, you know, what's going on with their family. And most of the time nurse practitioners are from the community. And so they understand the needs and wants of the community in terms of um, helping the patient with the needs that they have. I think that was a really nice uh, summary and and to show some of the differences uh, and that I think that nurse practitioners can make um, in making a difference for their patients. Um, nurse practitioners are often the only ones providing care in rural and underserved areas. And certainly this is true in where I live in sparse Wyoming. Um, there could be a large uh, county where there may not even uh, be a physician living there. So would you describe some of the challenges you face and how payment systems may impact these services? So I think there are multiple issues in terms of payment issues for nurse practitioners. One, um, we have 23 states in Washington, D.C. that have uh, what we call full practice authority. 
for nurse practitioners, you're in one of those states. Mm-hmm. Um, and in those states, um, the nurse practitioner is able to practice fully in her license or his or her license is independent of another provider. In many states, we see some restrictions re- re- related to a nurse practitioner licensure, uh, either by means of having to have some sort of a collaborative agreement with a um, with a uh, physician usually um, in order to prescribe medications or some avenue is restricted. In some states, there's even language that the nurse practitioner has to be supervised uh, by a physician. There's no other profession where they are supervised by another profession. That's one of the biggest barriers that we, that we face. And then oftentimes in payment, uh, particularly when we see nurse practitioners in states where they're not practicing to the full extent of their licensure or their education, uh, we see a lot of incident to billing, which is where the physician is, uh, the team or the physician bills underneath their name instead of the nurse practitioner's name. And so that makes hidden uh, the role of the nurse practitioner within that healthcare team in the system. Otherwise, you know, we are paid pretty much the same as everyone else. However, if you're not in a community health center or a federally qualified health center, you would get 85% of the physician payment, which is another barrier uh, for nurse practitioners to be successful at, um, at providing practice more independently um, if they had their own practice. But, you know, the world is changing. And uh, what we see mostly now is even physicians are hired and um, employed by larger health systems and nurse practitioners are, are, are in that mix as well. Um, so we see a varying degree depending on where you are in the country. And when you talk about being in Wyoming, I live in Pennsylvania, and it wasn't that long ago that my former practice partner who's now um, passed away, but uh, up until uh, just a few months before she uh, passed, uh, she was seeing uh, patients via telehealth in mid-northern Pennsylvania because they did not have access to a primary care provider in their area. So there was a nurse um, available in in a clinic to operate equipment, and she was doing the telehealth visits uh, with those patients um, and doing their primary care that way uh, because they had no other uh, choice, no other access. Um, And so then that becomes an issue of payment uh, and regulations across states and um, with telehealth services, which nurse practitioners, um, you know, also provide. So we have a whole body of um, of payment issues, the same as what was talked about in the other podcasts about the difference in fee-for-service, value-based payment, how you get paid. But I think nurse practitioners do a really good job of uh, caring for the patients. And so um, when it comes to value-based payment, um, you know, and being accountable to the patient, providers, payers, purchasers, all of those that go along with that value-based payment model, I think nurse practitioners are in a good place because it's pretty much how we've always practiced with the outcome, the best outcome for the patient in mind. We believe the patient is the center of the care. Right. And just as you were speaking, I was thinking uh, just a sidelight, it came into my mind that with COVID, certainly telehealth, we've seen that those services increase in the need for them, but also 
some states have passed emergency um, rulings in terms of uh, nurse practitioners maybe not having to have that collaborative agreement Mm-hmm. or have a little more what I call full practice authority. And I, I even think one state adopted a new, um, was that? Yeah, so we just had Massachusetts that yeah. became a uh, full practice authority. And I, I want to remind um, folks in the audience that, you know, having a licensure, an independent licensure is what a nurse does now in Pennsylvania. If I wanted to put my sign up as an RN clinician, I could. Uh, that's not true in every state, but uh, as a nurse practitioner, I can't unless I have a, um, you know, a physician collaborator. That's like saying, okay, well, if I'm in uh, West Virginia, I could drive a car, but when I come over to the border in Pennsylvania, I can only drive it if my husband's in the car uh, with me. I mean, it it, it just doesn't really make any um, sense. Now, where you practice in terms of your practice setting, you know, that may have a different uh, dictate, different rules, because that's in the setting that you choose to practice. So we do see some changes there. And of course, every state has different rules and regulations. But what we do know is in the full practice authority states, where nurses can um, establish independent practice, we are more likely to see them going out to provide services in the rural area. And that was in the uh, AEI report that uh, Peter Beerhouse, you know, did the work on, I think in 2018. So I think we do know that um, that, that would be a positive step for uh, our healthcare system if we could remove barriers. Mm-hmm. And um, sadly, with COVID, we're seeing some states repeal those um, extra uh, benefits, I guess, or, or, you know, removal of barriers for nurse practitioners um, and uh, repealing those back to where they were. Uh, so it's kind of sad to say, well, in an epidemic, you can do everything, but once the epidemic's over, well, now you're, you're not qualified to do that by yourself anymore. It just, you know, it really uh, is a disadvantage for the patients and their access to the type of care they need. And in terms of telemedicine or telehealth, I think that um, I think patients really like that access to care. And regardless if you're in a rural area or in a uh, city, uh, having that access, immediate access to care generally uh, via telehealth is, uh, I don't think it's going to go away once COVID's over. I think it's going to be assimilated and used differently um, within the healthcare system. And I think nurse practitioners are well prepared to use um, the technology. Right. So, so that's, that is a positive that I see that has come out of COVID in the sense that I think we're um, providing that increased telehealth services. So let's move on. Nurse practitioners are often faced with complex patients that are, have not been getting the regular care. And can you help other, the listeners understand why that, that might be? Well, oftentimes patients, um, particularly in rural areas, first of all, they have a sense of, um, of resilience and hardiness and health is function. So as long as I'm able to get up and function, I'm, I'm healthy. That's how it is here in Appalachia. And so, so uh, they are more likely to wait until something is really wrong before they um, reach out and seek care. And then if they uh, do not have that, that access to care available or if they don't have um, health insurance or if they're on Medicare, Medicaid, 
uh, they may not be able to um, to get into services because not everyone takes you know those types of insurances. And so um, so that also limits access. And so nurse practitioners are often uh, it, you know, practicing in rural areas, underserved areas in, in the cities, and uh, are more likely to take Medicare and Medicaid, which I think is important in reducing access barriers to uh, patient care in the United States. Right. So that that's really an important issue. Um, I think we've touched on this, you touched on this a little bit, but I think we could um, kind of talk about it a little bit more. But Traditionally, nurse practitioners have focused on the whole patient and not just a body part. So has value-based care affected the provision of holistic care and how? Well, I think that um, in some some ways, value-based care has really um, pushed us to look more, you know, at the individual um, as a whole, to be more patient-centered, and to look at models um, that include the patient in as well as providers and payers. And also um, it, it provides for more transparency, you know, in what's going on in terms of the care the patient receives. So I think that because nurse practitioners look at uh, the patient in more holistically, that we're looking more at, you know, okay, not only is this uh, patient with diabetes, um, having poor blood sugar control, but they've had weight gain, uh, we're, we're more likely to take the time to delve in to find out exactly what's going on. Uh, I tell the story of a patient I had who had an A1C of 14. I was so happy when I got it down to 11, but you know, the payment model doesn't give me credit from getting from 14 to 11, knowing that I'm probably never going to get to eight or seven in that A1C. How I got her down to 11 was I said, well, you know, what are you eating? And she, she told me um, something she's eating. And then um, she told me that she eats, you know, at a certain place. So I went there. It happened to be a, a community soup kitchen. And I found that all that they had really in that uh, place for them to eat was carbohydrates. So macaroni and cheese, spaghetti, rice dishes. And uh, that was her only meal, really, of the day that she ate. She was living on, I think, uh, $30 a a month in food stamps, which, you know, doesn't go very far today. And so, you know, you're trying to tell her how to make the best choices from what she has there. You know, and she's like just looking at you because, you know, this is what I eat. So um, I I, and oh, and also they had a a lot of donated soda there. Uh, Where I'm from, we call it pop. But <laughs> they had a lot of soda um, in that area and uh, donated. And so she was also drinking a lot of soda. And of course, that was having a big impact on her um, her diet as well. And so I think you have to take the time. And when you get to know people in the community uh, and know what's going on, then you could start to really address some of those um, uh overall population health disparities. So from not only talking to them in the kitchen about how they could offer some things a little differently, it doesn't only help her, but it helps everyone in that community that's trying, that probably has the same issues or similar issues than she does. So um, so I, I think that our focus has always been, you know, nursing from the very beginning has always been about public health, population health since Florence Nightingale, Lillian Wald, 
and other uh, famous nurses that worked on public health issues. And so we're, uh, we are taught from our undergraduate education, you know, that we look at the patient, the family, and the community. So you've really given a good view of what it's really like in the trenches. So when a patient in a rural area requires specialty care and must travel to a big medical center, what does the nurse practitioner have to think about before the referral? And then what happens when the big medical center wants to continue to follow that patient? Yeah, so we see that uh, happening a lot um, in, in rural uh, areas. So for instance, I um, am the primary care provider of my panel of patients, and oftentimes um, we have a medical director. I do not have a collaborating physician uh, in West Virginia. If you don't uh, prescribe uh, scheduled medications, you don't have to have a collaborating physician. And so um, I chose not to do that. And um, But we do have a medical director who is a physician in our clinic. And a lot of times what happens if I have to, to send the uh, patient out to a clinic or to a, or to a specialist, I mean, or, you know, to a, a large tertiary care hospital for services, oftentimes I'm kept out of the loop because the information goes to the physician. I think it's gotten better over the years where they have been recognizing nurse practitioners as the provider, and I will get a letter to, to address to me. But many times the, uh, I will get a call from the physician saying, oh, is this your patient? Hmm. You know, so um, and the other problem that we have um, in oftentimes in large teaching hospitals is that they will make follow up primary care appointments for the patients in their primary care clinics. And then the patient has um, access, further access to care. And then they're kind of confused, like, am I supposed to see you or am I supposed to see them? And so um, I understand that they're trying to make sure there's continuity of care. But if somebody is 50 miles away from that, uh, that tertiary care, they're not going to go back there for appointments. And, and so that really disrupts that um, that trust, I think, with the providers, but also disrupts that continuity of care. Mm -hmm. um, and isn't also transportation an issue in the area where you are too? Because I know in Wyoming, we have <laughs> big distances to travel. Yes, transportation is, is uh, a huge problem. Um, you know, I also live in a rural area. We have no public transportation or very limited I think there is a, a bus service that, or an van service that will come around and pick up senior citizens for uh, for appointments. But uh, mostly, otherwise, there there's very limited uh, unlimited bus services in my town that certainly don't come out to where I live. Um, so we see uh, limited bus services or no bus service. Uh, we see uh, patients. Most of mine. Uh, you know, if they have to choose between uh, a couple gallons of gas to get into an appointment or buying milk and bread, they're probably going to pick the milk and bread. And so uh, particularly, I think today around here, the gas prices were about two seventy nine a gallon. So that starts to get kind of steep uh, for people. And if they have to drive 30, 40 miles, um, they're probably just going to miss their appointment. So there's not really the services to pick people up in rural areas. And then there's also the distance. And then there's also the quality of the 
the cars, you know, that they're driving may not be able to make that distance, uh, particularly, um, you know, in bad weather, like we're experiencing right now. Um, so, you know, there are multiple things when you're talking uh, about rural areas um, that that hinder access to care. So if we, we can um, have nurse practitioners in those little communities that can help uh, uh, reduce their barriers to access, it's very important, I think, for our healthcare system. Right. And, and to make sure that that, that we can really provide good follow-up and they don't have to drive large distances to get that. Right, and I think to see the outcomes that we want to see in the value-based care model, I think it's important you know, to establish those relationships, but also to have the follow-up uh, and, and to make those good connections. Uh, I always have good connections with the pharmacist, so I know if they're picking up their medications or they haven't gotten them in a few months. And I can say, you know, I, I heard that you're not, you know, filling your prescriptions, what's going on, all oh, this costs too much, or I, you know, I had a change in my insurance, then we can make uh, adjustments, you know, to try, try to help, um, help them be more adherent, uh, you know, due to the financial costs, which is also a big uh, barrier for many, many people. Right. So let's just shift a little bit. And I know we could talk about these, you know, individual patient care issues for quite some time, and maybe it actually could be another podcast. But um, what kinds of national meetings have you been able to participate as a leader in the American Association of Nurse Practitioners to alert regulators and lawmakers to the issues of care for patients who have health care disparities? So back in 2016, 2017, I, I um, had some Hill, uh, participated in some Hill briefings, and then I testified uh, before Congress in terms of um, expanding the ability for nurse practitioners and made that permanent. So um, after I uh, testified before Congress, um, I went to the White House in 2018 to see President Trump sign that legislation. Not only did it make permanent the ability for nurse practitioners to, to sign medication-assisted uh, treatments for opioid disorders, but it also expanded that out to other advanced practice nurses. So I was very happy to see uh, that include our sisters and brothers and other uh, parts of nursing to be able to um, expand that access. Because uh, when I looked at some of the rural uh, counties around me in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia, uh, we would see that um, the uh, oftentimes there might be one uh, physician provider and maybe one physician assistant and one nurse practitioner in a whole county mm -hmm. that was uh, providing. Um, providing those medications for uh, addiction. And so I think it was very important that we were able to expand that out to other advanced practice nurses and make it permanent for nurse practitioners. And we've seen uh, nurse practitioners uh, come to the table with a waiver. We also at, at the American Association of Nurse Practitioners uh, put together uh, a 24 credit CE program for nurse practitioners that, that, that are required in the law, but really um, nurse practitioners, PAs, physicians, anybody could take that, uh, that course on, um, you know, on prescribing um, the medication. So that was an exciting time. Most recently in August, I attended a, um, a meeting with um, 
then um, Seema Verma, the uh, CMS chair, and we're and talk specifically about programs to to improve access and decrease barriers to care in um, in rural areas. And so I think some of that will be continued under the new um, under the new Biden administration. So I'm looking forward to see seeing what happens and the changes uh, perhaps that would improve access uh, to care. Also, um, I've been part of the Rural Health Association and um, some colleagues and I from your uh, part of the country, uh, we presented um, on preparation of nurse practitioners to practice in rural um, in rural areas. So we we were uh, widely received by that um, very mixed audience about how to prepare uh, nurse practitioners to practice in that type of a setting. So it it's been exciting in the tables that you've been at uh, to sit at and 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 to really make a difference. So you have talked a little bit too about A and P of what they do, but certainly maybe you could discuss a little bit about through you know education or legislation to address some of these issues. Um, has A and P um, how they've been involved in this process? So of course at A and P we're always watching the um, what's going on. We have a federal office that watches the federal legislation and a state office that watches the state legislation. We're trying to work with states um, and other agencies that are in the states to improve practice, not only for the benefit of nurse practitioners, but also uh, you know, keeping that patient in the center of care. We've been part of moving towards some uh, exploratory models now to remove some of the barriers in home health. Um, there are some projects going on in terms of, uh, I believe it's in Maryland, um, you know, to uh, expand the ability for nurse practitioners to order home health, uh, to order diabetic shoes, uh, those things at that level that we have been um, that we have been behind on, I guess, and and actually ends up costing the patient more time and more money, um, and so we're constantly watching uh, what's going on at the state level in terms of moving forward, sometimes in baby steps, uh, movement toward the full practice authority in licensure, and also um, you know, what, what nurse practitioners are able to do or not do in each, in each state. So AAMP continues uh, that fight um, in every state. I think it's very important, um, as I said, uh, for the nurse practitioners. And oftentimes, I think it's very important because most of the times educate, uh, nurse practitioners are educated in or near their communities. They do their clinical practicum in their com communities and they tend to stay in that community. So I think a good example is the, uh, are the two nurse practitioners that run the health wagon. It's been on uh, the national uh, front in Wise, uh, Virginia. Um, you know, and they say right in on the video, you know, we could have went anywhere, but we're from here and we want to stay here and take care of the people here. And for the people there, I think it's really important to have someone who knows you, knows your environment, knows your community, um, and, you know, and knows that they're the center of the care and knows what the um, health disparities are, you know, uh, and what you're facing in that area. Right. That's important inf information. And, um, I think that um, 
the idea that if you can attract people to come to a rural area that we found that that just just necessarily doesn't happen. But if you live in a rural area and you you like that environment, um, then maybe we can educate and raise our own. So yeah, very, very important. important. Yes, I think that's very important in terms of you know, um, access to care and, and the, just a different value system. And, you know, when we start to look at um, social determinants of health, just having an underlying understanding of that um, is important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So if you had a magic wand and could revise payment systems to allow nurse practitioners to provide optimal care, what would that environment look like? Well, I think that I would want to make sure that the patient, of course, was the center of focus of the care and that we were able to provide patients with the with the necessary services um, that they need, because I think access to care uh, would be the first important thing on my list. In terms of nurse practitioners, I think um, parity and payment, um, credit for what we bring in so that we're not hidden under other billing models. Um, whether it's bundled or um, or incident to billing, so that all nurse practitioners will be billing under their own uh, code, uh, their own MPI number, and I think lifting the restrictions to uh, in every state to permit um, nurse practitioners to practice to the fullest extent of their education. If I had a magic wand, I, I, I would make that happen because I don't know, like I said, of any other uh, profession that is bound to another. Uh, profession to practice. And so, and I, I think we're making really good strides in those areas because we've been able to show the evidence of uh, the high quality, uh, cost-effective care that nurse practitioners, uh, nurse practitioners provide. But I also think it's evidenced by the fact that we've had over 1 billion visits to nurse practitioners last year. Right. And that's the ones we know of. That's not the ones that are hidden under the incident to billing. Right. And I think you mentioned earlier that you said 23 states had full practice authority. Um, There are states that have some restrictions and then they have more restrictions. And um, so can you name a few states that have some work to do in that area? (laughs) Well, I think if you look at our our map, it's primarily uh, uh, many states in the southern uh, part of the country. So uh, places like Alabama, Georgia, Texas, uh, you know, all uh, many of the su- southern states, Virginia, have um, uh, supervisory language and some are still, the nurse practitioners are under uh, not only the nursing board, but also the medical board. And so, um, so I think that in those states, um, you know, we know that you're more likely to have, um, they have a lot of health disparities. They have, um, you know, a lot of issues of access to care that could be uh, perhaps remedied if, if nurse practitioners were able to practice more autonomously. Right. And I think the states, uh, if you just look around the country, certainly if you look at the Rocky Mountain West or rural areas, that states that, um, uh, our Alaska, for an example, too, um, that there aren't a lot of um, physicians practicing have had uh, early full practice authority states. And um, 
So we appreciate the work that you've done in states like Wyoming, Montana, Alaska, you know, the early uh, uh, Washington, D.C., you know, early, early adopters of full practice authority because um, we have been able to see that, um, that, you know, with the changes in, in healthcare system. So you start to look at, you know, if you think about our history back in, uh, when uh, Loretta Ford and Henry Silvers, a physician, started the nurse practitioner movement, and there were others, and uh, they always get the credit, but there were other uh, places that were, you know, along with that. That was in 1965. What was happening then? Medicare and Medicaid, right? We're starting, and we had a new health uh, system. Then along comes other changes in the in the healthcare system, and President Obama comes with the ACO model. And all of a sudden, we have more people into the healthcare system, not only because of the insurance, but I think just because of the aging population, mm-hmm. you know, the baby boomers that hit at that time, we started to see an increased uh, need for services. And as you said earlier, we see more physicians going into specialty care. But I also want to say that we had um, more nurse practitioners also going into some sort of specialty care to work in those specialty teams. But And we also saw that expansion of Medicaid in many states. And what we saw in uh, many states is that be, even though they had the Medicaid card now, they still were not able to get the services because no one was expanding their services for the amount of uh, uh, patients they would see who had Medicaid. So I think um, so all of those elements and changes in healthcare, the aging population have really pushed you know, for a need for a change. And I think that nurse practitioners are a really good answer to some of the problems that we're experiencing in our healthcare system today. Right. And if, and if you look at our um, uh, nurse practitioners, we're graduating a, a pretty good uh, large number of students each year. And, and our, our numbers are growing uh, quite fast if you look at around the country. So we've had. So I think we have about two. Oh, I was going to say we have about two hundred ninety thousand yep. uh, nurse practitioners in the United States now. But I do want to remind you that I know we have a, a lot of people coming out of programs, but we also have a lot of people aging out and right. looking forward to retirement at the same time. So the early NPs like you and I are are looking at you know well when are we going to retire? And so I think that. Um, that while we have more people coming in, I think we'll be seeing some, just like other professions, seeing some people going out and then we need uh, we need to replace. But, you know, in general, I think nursing in general is a wonderful uh, profession. We don't get the accolades. Now, I think COVID has really brought uh, attention to the role of the registered nurse and really helping promote uh, what we do in nursing. And I think the nurse practitioner is really uh, an innovation in healthcare delivery, uh, now the payment models have to catch up. Right. So, so well said. So, thank you, Dr. Canestric. It's been a pleasure to take a deep dive into this important subject. And we appreciate you, our listeners, for joining us today for another discussion about healthcare disparities. You can access a transcript of this podcast on our website, movementislife.com. And remember to subscribe to us on any of the Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or Apple podcasts. Please be safe, be well, 
and keep working for health equity. So until next time, goodbye for now. <laughs>